Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this live and recorded event organized by the Alumni Association of John Cabot University of Rome, the Guarini Institute of Public Affairs, and the Permanent Secretariat of the World Summit of Nobel Peace Laureates, which I represent here as the moderator of this panel discussion titled From John Cabot University Undergraduates to Workfoot Program Nobel Peace Prize. My name is Livia Malcanjo, and I've been involved in the activities of several Nobel Peace Prize winners for the last 20 years, especially through the Nobel Peace Summit that with my colleagues, we organized around the world every year, inviting thousands of students and young leaders who are willing to meet and learn uh, from the Nobel Peace Prize winners gathering at our events. Today, we wish to celebrate the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize awarded to the UN Agency World Food Program, and I quote, for its efforts to combat hunger, for its contribution to bettering conditions for peace in conflict affected areas, and for acting as a driving force in efforts to prevent the use of hunger as a weapon of war and conflict. With this event, we intend to underline the importance of educational institutions like John Cabot University as the essential foundation from where to start a professional career in international organizations such as the United Nations. In the panel today, we have the privilege to have two alumni of John Cabot University who are working at the World Food Program and with their untiring aid have contributed to the success of this agency, along with the other 70,000 and more staff members in securing food in areas of the world where lives are always at risk because of civil conflicts, natural catastrophes, or pandemics affecting a substantial number of people. When I speak about success, I speak about the ability to, for World Food Program to always innovate their supply chain of food, be it by the air, road, or sea, and also the ability to collect as many funds as possible in order to secure their work. For this matter, the executive director, David Beasley, has done an amazing job in raising funds last year, for example, that was never done before. As you all know, the Nobel Peace Prize is awarded every year since 1901 to an individual or an organization or both for their outstanding contribution in peace. The Nobel Peace Prize is one of the five Nobel Prizes established by the will of the Swedish industrialist and inventor Alfred Nobel. Since 1901, the Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to 107 individuals and to 28 organizations, among which several agencies of the United Nations. UNHCR, which is the Office for Refugees and which actually won the prize two times, one in 1954 and one in 19, uh, uh, 1981. Then we have UNICEF, the United Nations Peacekeeping Forces, the International Labor Organization, and the United Nations organization itself, along with the late Kofi Annan, and now World Food Program. So the UN won the most prestigious peace prize in the world for a total of seven times. Congratulations. 
Before introducing the four panelists, I would like to give the floor to the president of John Cabot University, Professor Franco Pavoncello, who will address his welcome greetings before we proceed to the debate and eventually to the Q&A session where the audience will be able to write their questions to the panelists in the open chat, even starting out now. So please, President Pavoncello, the microphone is all yours. Uh, I believe that uh, you can hear me, yes? Yes, very well. Uh, very well, thank you very much. And uh, I want to welcome everybody to the celebration of this year Nobel Prize winner and uh, great benefactor of humanity, the United Nations World Food Program. And also of two of our great graduates who work there and doing very well there. And the long-standing relationship between the WFP and JCU uh, which has seen many, for many years, many of our students uh, going there as interns over the years. I can think of no institution more deserving of a Nobel Prize for Peace than WFP, than the World Food Program. Feeding the hungry and the starving, those in danger and those in flight, feeding the children so that they could learn in school without the evil destruction of uh, hunger. What could be more noble? To quote a 19th century Eastern European rabbi who said, taking care of the material needs of others takes care of my spiritual needs. I think that this sentence captures perfectly the spirit and the noble work of WFP across the world in any circumstances and no matter how dire these circumstances could be. I'm looking forward to welcoming to John Cabot, the executive director, Governor David Beasley, who has done so much and so well for WFP during his tenure. I hope he will come and visit us in the near future so that I can express our admiration for this exceptional organization that since 1961 has been an inspiration for all of humanity. Today, we also have the pleasure of celebrating two great JCU alumni who made a wonderful contribution to WFP, Michaela Cristiani and Ryan Anderson. Michaela, class of 2014, Ryan, class of 2001. Both of them are stationed in Uganda, and Michaela Cristiani is doing great work with the digitalization of refugee information and contributing now to the revision of that country WFP strategy. Allow, allow me also to say that I'm particularly happy uh, to honor and greet Ryan Anderson, the country director of WFP in Uganda, uh, who was uh, in the late 90s a student of mine. I hope you learned something from the classes he took with me. 
certainly was a great student and I really enjoyed having him in my class. Ryan has also received an award as outstanding uh, alum of John Cabot University. And you might know that his work in Sri Lanka during the, the tsunami, where he found himself, if I understand, the only representative of WFP there and the way he dealt with this incredible tragedy has really made him a, a, you know, almost a legendary figure in his own time. So it is great pleasure to see both having so much success and I wish you all the best. I also want to thank the Guarini Institute and Professor Argentieri and Professor Silvia Scarpa for joining this uh, beautiful event. Livio Malcanjo, our moderator, who among our many activities has also the authorship of Being Noble, a book about the many inspiring Nobel laureates and their work to bring peace worldwide over time. In closing my remarks, allow me to remember my late friend Paola Biocca, the spokesperson of WFP and a woman of many great talents and a great writer who perished in the tragic air crash of a World Food Program plane while on a mission in Kosovo in 1989. Recently, Rome has dedicated a school to her. And that is important because it will inspire those students to learn from her and about her as an example of the marvelous dedication of WFP to the needy and poor people around the world. So thank you all for being here and I give back the floor to Livia, thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Pauncelli, for your inspiring words and for the important work that the university you represent does for the undergraduates and for their future. Also through the internship career service, which allows students to access businesses and institutions straight away. So thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, now I would like to introduce you to our four panelists who with their tireless work have given their contribution directly or indirectly to the final decision that has brought the Norwegian Nobel Committee to award World Food Programme with this year's Nobel Peace Prize. We have tonight Ryan Anderson, as Presidente Pavoncelli uh, introduced, from the US, who received his Bachelor of Arts from John Cabot University in the 1990s and who joined WFP in 2002. Since then, he has served his world's large, largest humanitarian organization in many offices around the globe including countries literally destroyed by natural catastrophes like the tsunami, afflicted with genocide or hit by extreme poverty. Ryan is now the deputy country director of WFP in Uganda, which is the largest operational office of the agency in Africa. We also have Michela Cristiani with us from Italy, also an alumni from JCU who studied international affairs 
thanks to a full coverage scholarship granted as a result of her high school achievements. Michaela spent a semester in California State University to focus on women's studies. Then she moved to London, where she pursued an MA in anthropology of food, focusing into the cultural, social, and religious connotations that food has for communities. Michaela is definitely a dynamic international aid worker who also spent most of her professional career with WFP. Our third panelist is Professor Silvia Scarpa from Italy as well, who has introduced for the first time at John Cabot University courses in human trafficking and contemporary slavery in 2009. She also teaches international migration and human rights, all within the curriculum in political science. And she's the author of several studies on modern slavery and she's an expert evaluator for several international institutes. Our fourth panelist is Professor Federico Argentieri from Italy as well. He teaches political science and international organization at JCU. He teaches courses on international security and comparative politics, and he's also the director of Guarini Institute for Public Affairs, which offers series of lectures seminars and meetings to enhance knowledge and understanding of key issues and challenges facing our world today. He's an outstanding expert of contemporary history of Central Eastern Europe and Italy, and he regularly contributes to several newspapers and media. So now after this presentation, let me ask Ryan my first question. Ryan, how does it feel to be working for the largest humanitarian organization that just happens to receive the Nobel Peace Prize? Please go ahead. Um, thank you, Livia, and, and good evening to, to, to everyone. Um, how does it feel to work for the world's largest humanitarian organization? Um, it fills me with a great sense of pride uh, every day since I, I, I started and, and I, as you mentioned, I started in 2002, and it was really that sense of pride of the people that work with WFP, the people that, 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 that make it what it is, that really drew me to the organization. Um, you know, I was a young, young man in Rome, just getting ready to graduate from, from John Cabot, got an internship at the headquarters in WFP meeting people who'd been with the organization 15, 20 years, uh, sometimes even more, um, people that were now my age or, 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 or even older, and they still had uh, an amazing spark, an amazing spirit. They were still very uh, excited about, what, uh, about the work they did. They were very uh, proud of the work they did and very inspiring. And they were very keen on bringing in the young blood. Uh, and they, they were, they, they, they very much, uh, I'd, I had it told to me several times, it's, it's you young folks, you, you people that start here as interns and, and move up to the organizations that are the future of the organization and, and, and will take it in the right direction to continue uh, uh, WFP delivering on its mandate as the world uh, uh, evolves and the hunger situation in the world evolves. So I find it quite fitting tonight that, that, that I'm here together with uh, uh, another John Cabot alumni who I'm happy to have also 
on 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 my team who who's who's uh, closer to the age than I that I was then. Um, with the uh, award of the Nobel Peace Prize, I have to say that I was uh, I was really left speechless uh, when I got the news. Um, uh, again, a, a great sense of pride, but really a great sense of amazement, and 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 I was really happy for the recognition, particularly for those colleagues that are really working on the front lines, working in the midst of conflict, in the midst of civil war, uh, in the midst of the chaos caused by uh, by by natural disaster, where. Uh, you know, the, the, the wording of the prize really underlines how important hunger is to, and food security is to hard security, to peace uh, in countries and regions and in, in households' lives, um, and uh, that you can't have one without the other. Um, and uh, uh, it's great that the uh, 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 committee uh, brought this issue to the center of the world's attention because right now, despite us making great gains in the fight against hunger, um, those, great, those gains are at great risk right now. And in fact, we're starting to see those gains backslide as a result of the current uh, 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 global context, mm -hmm. the economic challenges, put uh, upon people, upon countries, upon economies across the world, um, and for the Nobel Committee to, to, to highlight the issue of hunger at this point in time uh, was a great testament to just how important it was and a reminder that despite, you know, the progress made and that we can be proud of what, what's made, we still have a long way to go. Uh, <laughs> the fight's not over. We're still very much... Uh, on the pitch and need the world's support in order to 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 get us over the, the finish line. Funds are fundamental in this case, and I'm sure that your executive director is doing a great job in the in fundraising. Amazing the the the, the funds that is uh, uh, being able to to collect in the last two years. Michaela, I would like to, to focus with you on the importance of the internship career services that universities of international reputation, such as <coughs> University, offer to their graduate students, because you are one of them. You started your internship um, in uh, several UN agencies. I read your curriculum. You, you, you spent some time in IFAD uh, and uh, then eventually in World Food Program. Do you want to tell yes. us your experience about it? Sure, yes. Um, thank you for your question. I, yes, I did start um, with uh, IFAD in Rome um, when I was still writing my uh, master's dissertation uh, for SOAS. And uh, I, I pursued that internship individually, but um, soon after, when I was actually coming to, to the end of those um, initial six months with IFAD, I, um, I received this email from uh, the JCU Career Services in which they were advertising this internship with the WFP. And that was really exciting news 
Um, I really did enjoy my first internship, uh, still, I mean, still in the same sector, in the food security sector, but I was really, really excited to, I was seeking for a bit more uh, of, of, you know, operational experience. And uh, I knew that, of course, for that, uh, WFP would have been uh, a much better organization to try and, and work for. So, yeah, it was really, really exciting when I saw that ad and uh, managed to get in. Um, and I would say in that sense, one of the most exciting things have, has been to uh, get to know a lot of other JCU alumni, which I had not met while studying, which I ended up meeting then during my, my path in WFP, my time in WFP, both when I started as an intern and when I, of course, came to Uganda, um, meeting Ryan that has uh, since been my, my supervisor, my boss. So That's great. it's been a really, really interesting experience. Wonderful. Now I would like to ask to Silvia. Silvia, you teach contemporary slavery at John Cabot University. Can you give us some notions about this delicate and uh, extremely subtle nowadays topic? The UN International Labour Organization estimates that over 40 million people are in some form on slavery today. How, how is that possible? Thanks, Livia, for your question. Uh, yes, actually, that's the first course that I introduced at John Cabot University when I joined the university in 2009. Um, and that's a focus that I have had also throughout my PhD uh, studies before. Um, I, I understand uh, actually the fact that you can't even believe that this is possible, but unfortunately many you know, are not aware of the fact that even today in many parts of the world, um, issues connected with contemporary slavery, obviously in various forms, depending on the country, uh, still exist. And I think uh, that uh, we have to be very careful, especially at this time of COVID-19, as Ryan was emphasizing before, unfortunately COVID-19 will bring uh, with it a serious economic crisis in many countries. And it's obvious that those who are more vulnerable will be affected the most. So there is a huge connection here um, between the issue of um, food security that he was also mentioning and the issue of contemporary slavery, which not always is uh, well uh, um, fought in a way. So if you look at that, definitely all these issues are to be connected and they are uh, relevant and important. And for this reason, I think it is also important to mention, aside obviously to this year, uh, Nobel Peace Prize to the World Food Programme, also the 2018 prize, which was given to Denis Mukwege, as well as Nadia Murad uh, jointly. The first one uh, actually is a doctor, a medical doctor coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And then Nadia Murad, as many of you know, who is a Jadidi activist. And um, I am sure that many of you are aware of the fact that Nadia, unfortunately, uh, had been um, uh, abducted by ICE, um, the Islamic State, um, together with many other women, and then was kept in a condition of uh, contemporary slavery. Obviously, you can then use various terms to, to define these issues. Some talk about sexual slavery from the point of view of international criminal law or, you know, um, form of uh, forced marriage or human trafficking, depending on the issue. So I think that, you know, when another, it's important going back uh, to the issue of contemporary slavery 
but also of uh, um, the system in which we live today, uh, in terms also of international organization, to have a coordinated action, such as actually the one that the World Food Program does in many countries. Programs that they do, such as the ones in school for feeding children, are very important because they avoid the fact um, that, that in particular leader girls, because we also have a gender issue when we talk about contemporary forms of slavery, might end up being relegated to a secondary role by the families and by re might remain more vulnerable than boys. Um, so I think that actually here we have a huge connection between the two. It's not by chance that they also teach international organizations at JCU. And I hope that probably we're gonna have a chance to talk about the, this um, as well later on. Uh, the, the multilateral system that we have in place and that has been unfortunately recently affected by the decisions of some states, um, you know, um, to uh, conduct unilateral, let's say, policies um, have uh, in a way or another affected the system. While I think that the Nobel Peace Prize this year to the Work Through Program demonstrates that we have, you know, uh, to, to continue to push for the system of for the very good ones, the very good organizations that are working for saving millions of lives all over the world. I was reading the last uh, data from the World Food Program. They are actually assisting uh, 100 million people in 88 countries. It's a huge number. So um, the fact that this organization is able to do that, as you said before, means that they are receiving funds from states and other donors, if they do not receive certain amounts of funds, obviously they're gonna have problems in meeting this challenge. Thank you very much, Silvia. Federico, how does it feel to have been one of the teachers of Ryan Anderson, to have had students like Michela at your university? And also you teach, one of the courses you teach is international organization. So how, how is it connected to the political science main course? Uh, interesting question. Um, actually, uh, the very first class uh, that they taught uh, here at John Cabot many years ago, 24 years ago to be precise, was uh, international organizations. And uh, uh, at that time, uh, uh, my acquaintance with the UN was uh, entirely theoretical. I had never uh, met anything uh, related to the UN uh, uh, except uh, indirectly. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I knew how it worked uh, and uh, so on, uh, but uh, didn't have uh, much experience. Um, and then the experience came uh, with the passing of time. Uh, the first interesting uh, contact uh, with uh, WFP precisely was in summer 97. Uh, <clears throat> a worker uh, for the World Food Program uh, enrolled uh, in my summer class, uh, which was not international organizations, of course, he didn't need it. <laughs> uh, he uh, was uh, uh, catching up with, uh, he was an operative of the WFP who hadn't uh, been able to finish college. And so he was taking classes at JCU to try uh, to, uh, you know, to, to get a degree. 
and he enrolled in a summer class which was about uh, security issues in uh, uh, in Europe after the Cold War. And he was like <clears throat> around 40 uh, and American citizen. And he started to tell incredibly interesting stories about uh, his experience with North Korea. Uh, he had uh, gone to North Korea several times in the previous uh, months and the previous year uh, to, um, uh, to assist the North Koreans during uh, a terrible famine that apparently struck the country in the mid-90s uh, after the, the death of the beloved the great leader number one, Kim Il-sung, who died in 94. And uh, he was telling stories of uh, uh, distress and misery, but also interesting stories uh, about uh, the uh, uh, contradictory attitude that uh, the North Korean uh, uh, officials whom he met had towards uh, the aid, because on the other, on the one hand, the WFP is generally viewed as uh, an American agency, which it is not, but it is. Mm. We know that. I mean, the, the director of the WFP is almost like a, an American ambassador, named usually by the president, by the incumbent president, among uh, you know. Uh, people who uh, don't work for the UN normally, but uh, have uh, talents for fundraising, uh, talents for, uh, you know, uh, humanitarian uh, activities and so on. So uh, that was so interesting that he almost replaced me. <laughs> he was teaching the classes with his uh, stories, uh, which was incredible which were incredibly interesting. Now, I don't know if Ryan can uh, help me out or Sylvia. Uh, how is it uh, uh, referred to in North Korea, uh, the famine of the 1990s? Uh, the, uh, it has a specific name, which is very euphemistic uh, in North Korea, but uh, I, can't, uh, I can't remember it. But at any rate, uh, the conclusion of his uh, talks was uh, we outside of North Korea have no clue of what's going on there. Uh, there is no way the statistics and uh, the general uh, life of the populace can be, uh, can be known, uh, even by people who are in the field, like uh, diplomatic personnel and so on. They are so restricted in their movements uh, and need always to be accompanied uh, by locals that it's impossible to get to know how North Koreans really live, except by people who leave the country and tell stories. Of course, those people are mostly credible and uh, uh, interesting. Um, right. So this was the first impact. Uh, then uh, one second impact was uh, in the same year, uh, the Kyoto Protocol. The Kyoto Protocol uh, was signed, if I remember correctly, uh, at the end of 97, of that year 97. And the Kyoto Protocol, for those uh, uh, born in this century or <laughs> who were not uh, 
like adults at that time, most of you guys, uh, the Kyoto Protocol was the first uh, international agreement sponsored by the UN with regards to cutting uh, the CO2, uh, CO2 emissions, sorry, uh, gradually in order, you know, to prevent uh, uh, environmental problems from growing worse. Hmm? Now, there is still a discussion, uh, interestingly, uh, the discussion uh, about uh, CO2 and its impact on uh, the planet uh, mm -hmm. is uh, uh, resembles, in my opinion, uh, the, uh, the debate on uh, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> there are people who are more skeptical and people who are uh, less skeptical. But at any rate, um, the, um, the Kyoto Protocol was an important step uh, and uh, uh, in those times, uh, uh, Clinton and Gore were uh, uh, the leaders of the United States and they tried to uh, present it to US Congress, which was quite skeptical about it. Uh, not only uh, the Republican majority in Congress, but also uh, uh, several Democrats uh, were not uh, entirely convinced. So in the end, the United States uh, uh, did not uh, ratify uh, the protocol. But that was certainly uh, something uh, uh, worth discussing. And then the third uh, experience was uh, with uh, Staffan de Mistura. Mm -hmm. Staffan de Mistura is a senior uh, executive of the UN. He is uh, an Italian Swedish uh, citizen. Uh, he has a double uh, origin and citizenship, but uh, uh, he uh, was educated mostly in Italy, actually at the same university than me, La Sapienza, political science at La Sapienza, a few years before me. And uh, um, that was an interesting uh, experience. The first of uh, several, he came to John Cabot uh, uh, at least uh, three or four times uh, to uh, debate on uh, various issues. Uh, he came in 2000 to debate about uh, uh, precisely the Kyoto Protocol and he was very supportive, which created uh, some uh, debates because not everybody agreed with him and that was a very interesting uh, discussion, um, very constructive. Uh, but I would like to speak about uh, the students. Uh, um, I have taught uh, uh, international organizations uh, for at least uh, 14 years, if I remember correctly, or even 15. So that makes 30 semesters and 30 classes taught. And since that is one of the pillars of the degree in international affairs and political science, uh, um, it was uh, interesting. Uh, very interesting experience uh, and I met uh, all sorts of students uh, from all over the world. I think uh, um, the students who attended uh, uh, those classes of mine uh, at a time when John Cabos was much smaller than it is now, uh, but I think there, there must have been at least uh, 40 or 45 nationalities, which is of course an enormously enriching factor that uh, you don't uh, get the chance to, uh, to have uh, in 
any university in Italy and very few universities in Europe, if any. Mm -hmm. Getting to have uh, 45, um, 45 countries represented inside of your classroom, it's, it's really a privilege. And of course, uh, there are difficulties, difficulties in handling materials, which is very hot. Uh, one uh, very important experience in the 1990s, in, in the very early years of my uh, work here, was uh, uh, the explosion of the ex-Yugoslavia. Uh, the war of succession in Yugoslavia was a very uh, tough uh, thing to handle because we had uh, several students from that area each of them had his or her own, uh, you know, touchy uh, moments and touchy topics. And uh, uh, it was really uh, difficult to make sure that you could uh, teach stuff about the UN and NATO, for that matter, without hurting anybody's, uh, anybody's feelings or, uh, or sentiments. So uh, that was really an enriching experience. Maybe uh, Ryan remembers some of that because those were the years when he was uh, um, participating. And I remember uh, you are very modest and unassuming, uh, Ryan, which is a, a good, <laughs> a good quality, definitely, <clears throat> especially in these times. But uh, uh, I know that you worked uh, while studying. Uh, you worked. Uh, hard uh, at night, four nights a week, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and yet you were very diligent and uh, reliable <clears throat> as a student. So <clears throat> I want to finish my, uh, my talk by praising uh, you and uh, by expressing my non-surprise <clears throat> for your brilliant career. Uh, on the other hand, I would like you to say a few more things about your experience in Sri Lanka, which you told us uh, on at least one occasion. Uh, I remember you came to uh, one of my classes uh, after that uh, to relate about the experience and uh, uh, about your several African uh, postings. Thank you very much. Thank you, Federico, for your nice words. And this was exactly what I wanted to ask to Ryan. I wanted to get back to him and tell us more about uh, one or more difficult uh, uh, human experiences that you have had during your work around the world. We are all curious to know what happened, uh, what did you do? Because uh, Professor Pavoncello was uh, reminding us that you found yourself literally alone in managing the situation in Sri Lanka when the tsunami catastrophe took place. So please, we are all ears and uh, ready to listen to you and your experience. Okay, thanks, Livia. And uh, thanks, Dr. Argentieri. You brought back a lot of memories from my, my, my time at JCU. Uh, talking through uh, some of those key issues we were looking at and then some of the, 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 the students that, that were there and what they were going through back in their home country, their families, et cetera, I remember very, very well. Um, yeah, uh, so, I mean, again, uh, the, the Nobel Peace Prize given to an organization that, 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 that is dedicated to fighting hunger, 
um, one of the most important places and unfortunately the most frequent places we need to, to, to work is in the midst of conflict. And I was in Sri Lanka, um, my first field assignment uh, uh, with WFP after my internship in Rome um, was, uh, was Sri Lanka. And I was, I was posted in Northern Sri Lanka. Um, and I was posted in the administrative capital of the rebel group that controlled that northern part of the country. The, the, it was called the Tamil Tigers, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. And um, this was pretty emblematic of WFP at that time. Again, there was a lot of... Um, uh, enthusiasm for young blood and the way that you learned was you got really thrown in on the deep end and you asked you were asked to swim you were given help to swim but but it was really you know learning by doing that I see and and sort of that's the only way to learn um, that I'm seeing less and less of uh, uh, I have to say as I get um, older um, but something I think still sits at the core of, of, of WFP and, and something that is still a very great strength. Uh, and I think, I, I'm not sure if she dropped off, but I think Michaela would say that as well. She's definitely been learning by doing here and thrown in the deep end and has, has thrived as a result. Um, my time in Sri Lanka. So it was an extremely difficult time. It was my first time ever being in a conflict area. Um, it was a hot war, um, ethnic conflict between the Tamils, ethnic minority in the north and east of the country uh, uh, against the, the, the Sinhalese-dominated government uh, from Colombo and the majority in, 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 in the country. Um, Everything in the country was uh, all relations. It was it was polarized around this this ethnic uh, uh, divide. So to go there as a twenty something year old young man right after university, it was a real eye opening experience. Particularly with my background, I I, I I I didn't grow up like some of my peers that Dr. Argentieri mentioned from the former Yugoslavia who who. Who, who learned about war up close and personal uh, early on in their lives. This was my first experience and it was quite a bit to, to wrap my head around. And then to see the, the human toll and particularly through the lens that WFP provides, the human toll in relation to hunger and you know one's own ability to feed their family and um, a, a, a mother's ability to, uh, uh, a mother not knowing whether or not she was going to be able to feed her child or children the next day. Um, um, and again, it was these sorts of experiences that really inspired me to uh, dig in uh, with, with, with WFP and become a part of, of what it is. Um, now, I was there, WFP was there basically as a result of the conflict to help mitigate the impacts of the conflict in this northern area. Um, when I arrived, it was the first year of a ceasefire, unprecedented ceasefire. So there was access to the north that had never been 
uh, at levels that were never possible prior to that for a couple of decades. Um, and it was really great time for a young person in their first uh, assignment as an aid worker to go to because it was quite hopeful. Money was coming in. There was the first peaceful and quiet time in Sri Lanka in several years. Uh, people were coming back into the region for the first time in several years, people that had been displaced out of it because of the war. Many of these people were people I, many of the people I worked with were, 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 were people that had been displaced um, and getting to know their personal stories really got me invested in the, the, uh, the, the, the development initiatives, which in the end were trying to contribute to the, the overall peace in the area. Unfortunately, the relations deteriorated in the first couple of years I was there. And like I said, uh, the, the, the conflict started ramping up again. At about the same time that it started ramping up to quite high levels with regular bombardments and shelling along the, 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 the border areas, the no man's land that separated the Tamil Tiger held area with the government held area, um, the tsunami hit. And I was the only international staff for WFP, not the only staff, but the only international staff for WFP in that northern region. We had obviously uh, other, other uh, internationals in the capital and the country office, um, but in that particular region, I was the, the, the only one. It was actually me and one other friend, another young guy from the UK who worked for the uh, uh, for UNHCR, for the United Nations Refugee Agency. Um, and we were actually on a short break uh, 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 about an hour away from uh, our, our, our duty station when the tsunami hit. Um, we quickly realized uh, the gravity of it or the potential for the gravity of it. We, we realized it was something very, very serious. Uh, we weren't sure how serious, but we immediately got back into the, 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 the UN vehicle, the land cruiser with the blue light and the flag and, and raced back up north to, to the, 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 the place we were based. It was a, a town called Kilinochi. And amazingly, the one thing that we made, made us realize how serious the situation was because coming from the south, the government controlled area to the Tamil Tiger controlled area, you met a border manned by the government authorities. You went through certain checks, you passed that border, and then there was an international committee of the Red Cross uh, monitoring setup. And then you entered a couple kilometers of no man's land, another Red Cross station, and then the same sort of border checks, but this time by the Tamil Tiger. Uh, border authorities. And this was a bit arduous and tedious process. It always took you, you know, an hour or something to, to go through it. And that day, that morning of the tsunami, the gates were just open and they were just waving us through. Um, and that was when we realized uh, these two young guys, the only internationals, you know, representing the organizations that they served in that part of the country, just how great of uh, uh, an emergency this, this uh, uh, could become. And over the coming weeks and months, et cetera, we worked really hard, tirelessly, uh, uh, 
in the emergency response. And it was there that I really saw WFP do what WFP can do like no other. I mean, we went from a, it was, it was a relatively small operation, uh, uh, recovery and development oriented, focused on school feeding, which a few people have mentioned and some nutrition work. And within a couple of weeks, I mean, we, we really brought in the troops, the infrastructure, tools, uh, 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 communications equipment, transport equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And I really saw WFP for, in all of its strength, what it could do in the face of an emergency. And I was really impressed and again, very proud that I was, was part of it and got to learn so much through that first emergency response experience that has been so valuable in the several emergency responses I've worked on uh, uh, since then. And one really interesting dynamic that was there is that, as I said, this, this very hard border uh, between two opposing sides in a conflict, you know, the gates were open. And for a short period of time, there was a window where peace could have been achieved. And if if, if, if some of you remember in, in Indonesia, in the place where the, or the island near where the, the, the tsunami, the, the earthquake, the epicenter of the earthquake that started the tsunami, Aceh, Banda Aceh, um, was also in the midst of a civil conflict. There was the Free Aceh movement there. And in some ways comparable to the situation in, in, in Sri Lanka. And in that country, actually, the devastation of the tsunami sort of rocked the population of that region and the country so greatly that there was a path forward to peace found and the Free Aceh movement came to the negotiating table and there was a, a peace agreement signed as a result. And for a short while, there was certainly that hope also in Sri Lanka. Uh, unfortunately, as, as, as anyone knows who has followed the situation, that window was short and did close quite, quite quickly. And uh, within another year, we were back to a, a uh, quite intense war. Um, I stayed in Sri Lanka until mid-2007, about a year, year and a half before the final big push that uh, ended the war and... Uh, 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 well, eradicated the Tamil Tigers, at least as a, a, a fighting force in the country. What was interesting about that assignment for me at that age is that in one geographic location, I was able to uh, get experience in several different contexts in the, you know, the, the, the post-peace agreement, recovery-oriented, euphoria, hope, um, uh, in investment coming in um, uh, and, and learn about that. I was able to learn about how situations can backslide, how important planning for the worst is in terms of emergency preparedness, et cetera. And then a sudden onset emergency when we got slammed by the tsunami and, and, and how WFP reacts to that. So a real university for, for a WFP career in what was a four and a half year assignment and very uh, uh, foundational, I would say, in, in many ways and how I approached my, my, my work in other countries with uh, the World Food Programme 
uh, as well. One great thing there was that, uh, as I mentioned, we were thrown, uh, me as quite a young person was thrown in the deep end, so to speak. Um, but because of the culture in Sri Lanka, the mistakes of youth, as long as you were doing things with good intention, were really forgiven. Um, and you were given a second, a third, a fourth, and I don't know how many more chances by the local authorities, whether they be government or rebel authorities. And there's some countries, there's many contexts where that's simply uh, uh, not the case. So I was quite fortunate there to, to, to again, learn by doing. And, and even when I did stumble, um, the, the leaders in the area um, uh, appreciated WFP for what we were trying to do, appreciated me as a young leader of WFP at that time for what I was trying to do, and, and, and gave me the benefit of uh, doubt. It certainly helped me when I got to less forgiving environments later on in my career. Thank you, Ryan. Impressive uh, experiences. It is incredible that uh, the most challenging experiences are usually done in our 20s. Uh, uh, you remind me uh, when I was on my 27th, uh, I organized a humanitarian mission uh, that was uh, 2002 uh, to Baghdad, Iraq. Uh, for and with the late uh, Nobel Peace Prize, uh, Betty Williams. We managed to receive an airplane by the CEO of Alitalia. We managed to fly the no-flight zone with the authorization, of course, of the UN. And we eventually landed to Baghdad for only 40 hours. We brought um, 15 tons of medicines for children in the hospital. For you, maybe <laughs> it's not that much, but for the civil society that we managed to, to involve in this uh, event uh, was, uh, was a big deal. And we wanted to go there because we really wanted to understand if the weapons of mass destructions were there or not. So we were uh, young, we were following a, a, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Betty Williams from Ireland, that really inspired our um, years of, uh, of youth, I would say. And that, uh, well, that's, that's another story. Anyway, Michaela, I would like to ask you something. I was listening to the speech by World Food Program Executive Director David Beasley at the World Food Day this year um, on YouTube. And he said that 690 million people go to bed chronically hungry every night. While in the world, there are $360 trillion worth of wealth. So it is therefore inexcusable that every three to five seconds, a person dies of hunger. So how do you cope with this injustice every day at work in Uganda, where you're based with Ryan? And how do, how do you deal with that? And also, what is the WFP success to, man, to have managed the first wave of COVID-19 response, which maybe eventually led to the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize. Michaela, are you here? Uh, how do we cope with the... Yes, can you hear me? Sure, very well. All right, uh, huh. how do we cope with it? Um, I don't think we do. I think we, we just have to work hard and, and remember that 
although we may be criticized from many uh, you know, different sides, uh, at the end of the day, we're just trying to do our best in the context that we're working in. And that, you know, um, what we're doing is, for example, in Uganda, um, the biggest part of the operation is focused on distributing food assistance in form of cash or in-kind food to refugees. And of course, we do know that, um, you know, our contribution, our uh, food assistance isn't enough, is is always we're always struggling to make sure that we're meeting the food and nutrition needs of uh, refugees but it isn't necessarily enough and we're very acutely aware of that however there is a value i i think to you know just uh, understanding that we're not just uh, giving food as an essential need we're also trying to provide um opportunities to uh, the populations that we try and assist um, in the specific context of Uganda, you know, people that have um, escaped, that they've run away from war, they've run away from uh, their home countries, and they don't know if and when they'll be able to go back. And through the provision of uh, the food that we manage to, uh, to, to provide, we, we basically try and give them some hope and, and hopefully also create not only something that meets their essential needs, but also something that is, is um, you know, creating a connection um, to, um, you know, for example, to their culture. Um, we're, we're, provide, we're trying to meet the, the, the food preferences of the populations that we, that we, um, we serve. So trying to create there a little bit of comfort, a little bit of uh, hope, um, and a little bit of uh, familiarity uh, that we're trying to provide, um, hopefully trying to cope with the, not just with their basic needs, but also with the, you know, um, trauma that a lot of them have been dealing with. I understand. And you are uh, dealing with an uh, incredible new system of, um, um, for the uh, delivery chain um, that you're trying to face this new pandemic, COVID-19. And this is done in the office uh, um, in Uganda. So uh, what are the news from there uh, in order to um, be able to deliver uh, food in the best way as possible nowadays? Yeah, so, um, well, since uh, in 2018, we, uh, I coordinated the rollout of a distribution system that was based on uh, biometric recognition, mm -hmm. um, which uh, was done quite quite suddenly, quite, quite rapidly, uh, in a matter of uh, a year, we have a population of over a million um, point four uh, refugees um, in Uganda. So basically, when we rolled out the system, the idea was, of course, to increase accountability and um, in terms of distribution of food and cash assistance in the refugee settlements, but also trying to make sure that we would distribute assistance in a more dignified uh, manner. Um, all of those efforts, while they were, uh, of course, successful in, you know, in what we were aiming for, um, of course, had to very rapidly change as well uh, when, we, uh, when COVID happened, when COVID hit us. 
um, the world and, and Uganda as well. So while the system has been maintained in, in place, um, we had to suspend temporarily the recognition, uh, the biometric recognition at the distribution points for clear reasons due to COVID. But also WFP was, um, you know, uh, coped with this emergency just like it does everywhere else in the world. Um, uh, COVID was declared a, a level three emergency worldwide uh, for WFP offices. So we all, um, you know, we immediately um, deployed a surge capacity to our area offices and field offices. I was I was one of them. I was sent out to to the southwest of the country for a few months, um, and uh, and you know we tried to decrease uh, opportunities. Well, we tried to decrease gatherings, for example, by decreasing the frequency of distributions, which used to be monthly, now is every maybe every other month. Um, uh, or, for example, for food distribution, we, we, we implemented systems to prepackage the food to make sure that uh, beneficiaries could, that refugees could just come and pick up food uh, rather than spending too much time interacting between themselves and also with the staff, so to dec decrease exposure. And, of course, um, in this context, we also tried to, where possible, where markets were receptive, um, to, to increase cash assistance for refugees, uh, which um, on one hand, again, decreased opportunities for gatherings, and on the other hand, was also an opportunity to have um, an impact, to stimulate uh, through demand um, the, the, the local economies, both for, to benefit both refugees and host communities, um, of course. So a lot has been done, um, and, and WFP, is, as usual, was quite quick in, in acting. But I mean that that never really really ends. So we're still we're still working really hard in that direction and trying to to prevent COVID spread as much as we can for our operations. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Michaela. Before seeing if someone is already writing some uh, questions for our questions and answer session, I would like to ask um, my last question to Silvia. Um, Silvia, what do you think are the main skills and qualities that your courses at JCU are transmitted to your students? I mean, when a young uh, student on her or his 20s starts studying uh, human trafficking, uh, modern slavery, human rights violations, aren't they discouraged during their courses and maybe they want to change their curriculum studiorum and start studying arts and literature, for example. How do you encourage your students instead of discouraging them while you talk about genocide or rape? Please. Thank you very much, Livia, for this very, very interesting question, because obviously that's a challenge huh, that you have there. And I always tell to my students that you know, the courses oh. that I teach are, you know, when another said <laughs> courses, huh? when you talk about human rights, when you talk about contemporary forms of slavery, at times even international law, if you look at the fact that not always states are, um, uh, you know, following up in terms of the obligations that they have from the point of view of international law, as well as in the terms of international organizations, huh? when we study some of the failures of some of these organizations. But what I tell to them, is first of all, obviously, that they have to consider problems. And we also do group work 
um, uh, through uh, what I label a project or an advocacy in a way work, which means that I ask them actually to promote change. So usually what I do, I ask them, depending on the course, if it is international organizations to select an organization and then to identify a problem that the organization either, either have internally or that the organization tries to solve. Huh? So in the case, I have a student actually doing a project on the World Food Program this semester huh, in the international organizations course. So, but also uh, many other organizations. So if you look at that again, the idea is to have this very much of a practical approach that Ryan was mentioning before. Um, this also uh, leads me actually to my um, interest. I've always have have had an interest in international organizations and uh, um, this takes me back also uh, to what Federico was saying in respect of staff and Mistura. I was lucky enough actually to have staff and Mistura as my professor. Uh, in a course on international ne uh, negotiations when I was a student. Um, and I remember uh, that actually I got interested in international organizations when he started talking about these airdrops. So the way in which at times the World Food Program delivers food when they're not able to land in certain countries. So, and the fact actually that you always think about this in terms of bombardments, huh? something that comes from the sky and the fact that, you know, it might be something that leads to war. And instead, actually, the work for program was able to transform this into an instrument of peace. Again, you know, I think that takes us back to the fact that this organization really this year deserved um, this Nobel Peace Prize. Going back to the, the courses, as I said, very much of a practical approach that I have gained uh, throughout the years um, in terms of mixing, in a way, uh, practical work with some organizations as well, with teaching. Well, I'm sure you see this. And then again, this uh, learning by doing, which was also mentioned before. So again, putting students in front of problems um, and then asking to them to solve these problems. So whether it is a form of contemporary slavery in a country, or again, a problem of an international organization, an issue that has to do with an international treaty. Huh? So. Um, uh, as Professor Argentieri was mentioning before, in, in terms of the climate system, uh, in place climate change problems that we have, then how would you solve it? And then assessing, obviously, the work of students in terms of how they're able to use their critical thinking skills, which is, as you know, part of the liberal arts uh, method, uh, which is based on that, developing critical thinking skills, and then seeing how they can develop also other skills, uh, group work, as well as uh, delivering presentations in class, uh, as well as solving problems. Very good. Thank you very much. Silvia, and I would like to ask my last question to Federigo, if I may. Uh, we have been knowing each other uh, for many years, despite our young age. <laughs> this was possible because John Cabot University is one of the 100 university partnering with us, with the World Summit of Nobel Peace Laureates. So you brought several students to our summits along with your team from John Cabot University. I remember Pilar very well, where uh, students have the chance to meet uh, literally with history because that's what Nobel Peace Laureates are. They represent pieces of uh, modern history or something that has changed in a good way in our world today. So do you have any 
um, story to tell us uh, about those meetings uh, in which you also took part as professor, of course, not as a student. Uh, you have to unmute, let me help you. Hold on. Okay, uh, that was in 2014, uh, 2014, uh, and it was, if you remember, it was completely uh, serendipitous because, uh, uh, because uh, the, the story goes as follows. Um, uh, South Africa was to be uh, the place of the meeting, right? Um, it was the year after... Uh, Nelson Mandela had died, if I remember correctly, and South Africa was the host country. But then uh, China uh, politely told South Africa, uh, you don't let uh, the Dalai Lama in, or else we'll be very angry. And South Africa said, um, well, yes, maybe, I don't know, let's go to Rome instead. <laughs> yeah. Is that correct? Yes. <laughs> it was a last moment, a last moment thing. So I received the information. Uh, the, I don't know how many, how many Nobel Prize recipients uh, were there? 20, 25 maybe? Usually we have a group of uh, 30. Usually yes. 15 are individuals and 15 mm -hmm. are the head of Nobel Peace Yes, they're all coming to Rome basically one week before they were coming. <laughs> So, and that was on top of it, the end of the semester, when everybody is nuts. These were long before the pandemic influenced our lives so much. Uh, so it was the end of a normal semester where everybody was normal, crazy, uh, running after papers, uh, finals. Uh, I have to read uh, 1,000 papers uh, and, and Christmas is coming. Uh, and the family is pressing to burn all the paper that exists in the house, and so on and so forth. So, <laughs> in that situation, we organized uh, with many students who volunteered for the task uh, the assistance to the uh, to the to the summit, mm -hmm. and the students were so thrilled. I mean, the students still not only not only of course Alexandra. Uh, who was touched by the Dalai Lama <laughs> uh, physically after requesting permission, of course. But uh, uh, Giacomo and so many other students uh, were, they're still very excited and very thrilled six years after, and they will be for uh, many years to come, probably yes. for their Usually, lifetime. We also have experience of students who come uh, right after high school, they come to the event and uh, they don't know what to do, uh, which career to undertake. Uh, but after the summit, they all have clear ideas. It's amazing. Someone wants to do medicine. Most of them, obviously, political science, international relations. So the summit is definitely an experience that uh, remains in their life uh, forever. We have a question, I guess it's for Ryan. Um, we actually have two questions on the same topic. Uh, Leonardo Festucci, and we also have another student asking, um, in the case of the crisis in Yemen, 
why is it so difficult to get access over there and how WFP usually deliver food? Please, Ryan, can you reply? Hi, thanks, Livia. Um, I can, uh, I'll have difficulty providing a well-informed answer on Yemen because I'm just not familiar enough with the, the, the operation. Um, but it's something, I mean, overcoming access challenges in countries that are facing humanitarian crises, particularly those rocked by conflicts, is something WFP needs to constantly deal with everywhere um, uh, in many of our largest operations like Yemen. Um, there's a lot of politics around aid. Um, when aid is going, for the example, when I talked about Sri Lanka, aid was the most vulnerable areas of the country were areas controlled by the, 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 the rebel fighters, the Tamil Tigers, and therefore it was easy to associate the aid with supporting one side um, in, in, by some perspectives. And we constantly have to navigate that sort of tricky landscape where we try to deliver assistance to those who most uh, need it based on levels of vulnerability uh, that are objectively assessed. Um, but the, in the midst of a conflict, the political dynamics and the perception of the, the warring factions cannot be uh, uh, underestimated. The conflict in Yemen is extremely complicated internal to Yemen, but also with the external, uh, with, with the countries outside of Yemen supporting different, different sides. That only complicates our work uh, uh, even more. Um, but again, underlines the uh, uh, importance that WFP, as the largest provide the, the 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 largest humanitarian organization in the world, but all humanitarian actors, just the importance it is for them to work in those environments, maintain the humanitarian principles, so our credibility uh, with the governing authorities is, 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 is maintained and we're able to deliver on our mandate as unhindered as, as is possible in the context. So that's a bit of a long non-answer, um, but it's the, the, the best I can do in relation to Yemen uh, uh, mm -hmm. without checking into things. Over. There is Elizabeth who is also asking, I was wondering the same about Ethiopia, where there is not yet an agreement for a humanitarian corridor to the refugees. So, same, same case, Ryan, as... Uh, broad answer I'm not I'm not on the ground I'm not I'm, I'm not immersed in in the operation I'm following a bit from distance but I I, I can't speak to it in, in any detail sorry <laughs>